Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Today on the show, we're joined by portfolio manager Patrice Kirion. For Canadian investors, Patrice manages Fidelity Global Concentrated Equity Fund and Fidelity International Concentrated Equity Fund, as well as private pool strategies. Patrice and host Brian Porskowski speak about the current market conditions and how Patrice is positioning his funds. Patrice's positioning is very much dependent on his contrarian style of investing. He looks at the fair value of a company, not necessarily on their earnings, but specifically can the company create cash flow in future years to come. He leans more towards the parts of the market that are unloved and out of favor. Patrice notes he's actually finding more opportunities to buy today compared to a few years back and says there are opportunities in the cyclical parts of the market. This podcast was recorded on February 21st, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. So let's start off with the big Canadian news today. Inflation, uh, what came in a bit lower in January, 5.9% year-over-year numbers, lower than the year-over-year numbers in December. Um, what do you make of that? Uh, is that good news? How do you, how do you feel about those, uh, those numbers today? Yeah, so maybe not commenting per se on the Canadian number, but if we look at inflation more broadly, globally, um, I think in general over the next months and next quarters, it will be more good news than bad news. Uh, I think we have reached peak inflation. We have passed that. Uh, we are starting to see uh, price pressures alleviating, especially on goods and on commodities. Uh, let's keep in mind that uh, if we go back over the past year, we had a tremendous amount of pressure coming on commodities from the conflict in Ukraine uh, and all the commodities that Russia is a big supplier of. Uh, I'm not saying that has no impact, but those fears are starting to yeah, alleviate and starting to reflect a little bit more the fundamentals, which is a demand picture, which is not phenomenal for a lot of these commodities at the moment. So we've seen those prices come off. Uh, with regards to goods, uh, we had a lot of pricing pressure because the consumer was in great shape, the man was good, there was a lot of supply chain constraints, and there was a lot of companies feeling they have fully the ability to pass on this inflation pressure that they're facing on the, goods, uh, on the price of the goods that they're selling. And again, this is changing a little bit. Uh, I think a lot of that price uh, that went through is starting to alleviate. Demand is not super normal like it's been uh, over the course of the past year. So I think we put the combination of lower or, or outright like deflation on commodities and lower goods inflation. Think of like prices of, of used cars, for instance, which was like off the charts elevated over the past year. And that's sort of coming back to just normal in a way. Uh, will bring some elements of deflation, which will help offset what remains fairly strong and too elevated of inflation on wages. 
But all of that should be fairly positive uh, for markets and that's already sort of sipping through expectations as inflation will go from high single digits or low double digits, like if you think of parts in Europe because of the, out, like the outsized impact of energy over there, uh, to an inflation number which will be much closer to zero, uh, at least for a period of time, I think as we go through the summer, that will be seen as good news for the markets. It's going to be seen as good news for the consumer because wages should start to turn in positive real territory. Uh, for the past year, although there was a lot of wage inflation, it was still below the overall like inflation number. So consumers lost purchasing power across most of the globe. And as we go into, again, like closer to the summer, we could see wages outpacing general inflation. So consumers gaining some real purchasing power. And the big question is what happens next? So the market's starting to think about that as a contrarian. I try to take a longer time frame, try to think where could the market be wrong or the market could exaggerate some moves. And I think one we will need to watch, maybe not quite today, but as we move into like the next few quarters, is as inflation is on its trajectory towards something much more uh, pleasant, I don't know, closer to 0%, as I said, like maybe on target more or less, uh, the question is what's going to happen next? Um, and I think it could be the image of 2023 for global markets, not only Canada. I think it could be a transition year where we are sort of renormalizing on a lot of metrics. Uh, we could have some like starts and stops to the market. I think those data points will be extrapolated, but I think that could be a mistake in some cases. Um, and yeah, inflation, what it means for interest rates is going to be crucial like it's been over the course of the last uh, year or so. Let's talk about the international and global, which is the areas that you really cover. Um, you know, the U.S. has been the popular market for the last while. Um, how do you view international opportunities today? Is there a shift there between kind of U.S. international yet? Um, what are you seeing? I think we might be uh, or might have passed that inflection point where I think a lot of you would agree with that. The story of the past like decade has been the U.S. just really outperforming the rest of the world in terms of its own economic performance, performance of its stock market, sectors that were really in favor, notably like tech uh, being heavyweights in the U.S. indices versus other parts of the world. The U.S. dollar has been really strong. And I think a lot of that, if we think back to what happened, has to do with a world where interest rates have been at zero or in some parts of the world in negative territory. I think that's an era that really favored um, a market that has more exposure to growth sectors, that more, that, that in a greater way like benefited from this really, really like easy environment from a monetary perspective globally. And also benefited to the last 10 years have actually not been like a phenomenal decade for economic growth across the globe. Like we've had, sort of a muted recovery from the financial crisis of 2009. If you go like in Europe, like they, it took a long time to get over the European financial crisis of 2013-ish area. Um, we had like a much more muted recovery through all these years. And then like in the later part of that, we had a pandemic and a war that just like really waited. So I think you look back over the past 10 years and it's been a decade of muted economic growth globally 
and one where easy monetary conditions were in place to help stimulate a little bit of that growth. So what happens from here? What's the next five or 10 years ahead and how different could it be? I think one of the biggest difference might be that we no longer likely need this such like easy monetary background for global markets. I think after many years of very tepid growth globally, we may have some ingredients uh, to lead to some economic recovery, especially in the rest of the world. Think of in China being probably the biggest like uh, epicenter of that, where growth has been like really, really muted over past years, especially given their reaction to the pandemic. Uh, it seems we're going into a more like stimulus-driven like recovery phase for that economy. Uh, you look at Europe, uh, same thing, like the war and the implications of the energy fears in that economy have, have really dampened like economic growth. Uh, I think now that most of that negative hopefully is behind us at some point. Uh, we could see some greater optimism and, and Europe is in generally more tied than the US to a recovery in China and Asia in general. Uh, so I think that could be a little bit more positive as well. So if we get the background of an economic recovery that necessitates higher interest rates, uh, I think you start to make a case for the more cyclical parts of the world, notably, uh, notably China, uh, some emerging markets, think of Mexico, think of South Korea that benefit from that, and Europe as a whole may be being better positioned at the same time that we could be in an environment where interest rates stay higher than where they've been or higher for longer type of rhetoric, which could continue to keep valuation under some pressure that may remove some of the speculative behaviors in the market that might remove the overly easy access to funding from like growth and innovative, innovative like young companies that in general we've seen more of in the US versus the rest of the world. Uh, and it could lead to a period where uh, the US dollar maybe loses a little bit of its shine uh, versus uh, a very strong performance uh, over the past many years, which led to the competitive positioning of other currencies. Think of a weaker yen, a weaker euro, a weaker sterling pound, um, sort of allowing some flexibility for these economies and, and for those currencies to regain a little bit of strength uh, in the years ahead. And I think if you put all of that together, which the market seems to be uh, doing since, since Q4 of last year, really, I think we can start dressing a much more favorable picture for international markets going forward versus their relative lackluster performance uh, of the past decade. It's great. Well, that's good news for you. Um, looking at those markets and uh, you mentioned, I mentioned at the top and, and you mentioned contrarian investing. Tell us about that style. What is a contrarian investor and how do you approach stock picking? Yeah, so I think in my case, it starts with two fundamental beliefs that one, the markets are very directionally correct, but two, when those trends being either trends on companies, on sectors, on countries, uh, on style factors, get too lengthy, too recognized by everyone, no longer debated, the market tends to exaggerate its movements. So the market will be 
directionally correct, but will overreact uh, to whatever information it is that has some lasting power. And that creates opportunities to take the counter view and stretch your time horizon a little bit and go look for companies where the sentiment has been negative for very valid reasons, but where the market has overpunished those securities, where the market has basically disconnected the valuation we pay today versus a fair value for that company. And the fair value of a company in my eyes, and I think in the eyes of all investors should be, not based on the earnings of this year or the earnings of next year, but really on the ability of that company to generate cash flows for its owners for the many decades to come ahead of us. And the reality is for a lot of companies out there, the change in that fair value, the change in the future value of all cash flows tends to be less volatile than the, how the market moves the value of its share price around. And trying to take advantage of that means going in parts of the market that are unloved, that have been out of favor, and I'm not saying out of favor over a past like week or month, that has been out of favor over a past many quarters or year or two, and to spend a lot of time with our fundamental research team across the globe, trying to identify the companies where we have a high level of conviction that, that then the market has overcorrected the share price versus that long-term view of what's the fair value of the future earnings of that company. And typically, like, macro will have a role to play because there tends to be a lot of these companies, so the funds are very much managed from a bottom-up basis. So we analyze companies, we ask ourselves, what's the fair value of that? Where does it trade today? But the reality is where we find those disconnects between market values and fair values tend to happen in very correlated parts of the market. And in the past few years, it meant a lot of cyclical stocks. Um, it meant a lot of European exposure. It meant, like in the past like year or so, much more exposure to China. Uh, and that's my contrarian approach. Let's go in those parts of the market that are out of favor, where it's really easy to have an argument against investing there if you don't ask the question, what has been priced in? What's reflected in the value of these stocks already today? And trying to buy high quality companies where time is on our side. So it's a value approach overlaid with the quality approach and the quality approach is there so that if we were to be wrong on all long, it will take for a situation to normalize. Like the pandemic has been a great example of that. I think it was in retrospect, relatively easy to say, well, all these companies tied to like the leisure or like traveling sector were overly penalized and they were reflecting a very difficult short-term situation, but the stocks were not reflecting like a normal environment for these companies. So my approach was to go look at that basket of stocks being either like travel companies, like airlines, cruise lines, aircraft manufacturers, hotel operators, whatever it is, and say, where are the big disconnects? And where can we have that margin of safety, that quality overlay, that means that if we are wrong on how long it will take for the world to renormalize from the pandemic, and by the way, we were wrong. I'd never thought it would take uh, 
two years in a lot of cases for the world to recover, um, where time is on our side. So it means not buying the airlines, but maybe buying the aircraft manufacturer, which is a much higher quality business that remains profitable even through tough times. Um, it means to maybe buy like an hotel like software system developer as opposed to buying like the real estate company that owns hotel. Again, like putting time on your side, if we're wrong, we're not going to destroy permanent capital um, and still get the exposure to that upside. And for me, that's really what it means to be contrarian. Stretch your time horizon, look for companies where the market has correctly um, came down in value, but has done so too much and using our fundamental research to take advantage of that. So where are you, I guess, how, how does that approach, um, how is it working today versus like a few years ago? Markets were, you know, generally pretty, pretty strong before the pandemic. Um, are you finding more opportunities today because markets have come down or, or is it even getting harder as now markets are starting to come back up a little bit um, this year? Yeah. yeah, so it's say uh, up until six months ago, it was getting increasingly easy because there were some really massive dispersions in the market. The market absolutely love more like the growth, your tech part of the market absolutely hated everything that was cyclical. The market loved the US, hated everything outside the US, loved everything that was tied to low interest rates, hated everything that was tied to higher interest rates. And that created a tremendous amount of opportunities. And I think we've been able to take advantage of that in a pretty nice way from taking, yeah, from going into those areas which were like really at extreme, like this market sentiment was really at an extreme if we go back four or five months ago and take advantage of those opportunities. Um, where do we stand now? Because you will probably all know that some of that has reverted in a pretty big way. Uh, we've seen, yeah, interest rates moving higher, which means growth being uh, hit in, in, in quite some ways. We've seen a regain of interest towards uh, Europe, towards China more recently. Uh, and I think that we've moved from a market that was basically like divided in two extremely loved or extremely unloved parts uh, of markets, sectors, geographies, stocks, uh, style factors, all of that, to something that is a little bit more in balance today. Um, I don't think we are seeing any extremes like the parts of the portfolio that I really like, that I had a huge um, exposure belt uh, as far as my like level of, of tolerance will go in terms of, of building exposures to, to certain like sectors or countries was, um, that has generally started to work out since, since literally since October. Uh, so my level of conviction is declining. I am working to rebalance the portfolio a little bit more. Uh, again, I, I'm fully aware that nothing sort of renormalizes in a straight line and we add more or less that since the past like four or five months. Uh, so I'm trying to be mindful of that. But if you ask me where are the opportunities over the next few years, I think, generally speaking, the opportunity is still where most of the portfolio is exposed. To me, that is more in the cyclical parts of the market, because at some point the market will go from fearing where's the trough on this economic cycle that we're in. And I think we will see that trough in all likelihood over the next year or so. 
But what's interesting is the market is a forward-looking mechanism. So by the time we have conviction on where that trough is, the market will already be looking to pricing in the recovery. And the delta between pricing in a trough to pricing in like a normal environment, pricing in that recovery, can be pretty large. So we've gone some ways to repricing that already. I don't think we've gone all the way. And the interesting thing is when we will have priced the recovery, if we go on that path, the market will price the next peak much sooner than maybe a lot of investors would sit here thinking today. So I think we are still on that trajectory over the next few years of let's focus on the economic recovery and at some point let's even focus on the next peak. It seems way too early to say that, but the market will move towards that. So I think we need to be mindful of it. Same thing in terms of geographies. As much as we're talking a lot more like about the benefit of the Chinese economy reopening, the market has certainly priced part of it, but I don't think we've priced all of it. So I still want to keep those exposures. I still think this is where there are some disconnects between market values and fair values. Uh, but the discounts and the margin for error is, is definitely a lot less than it was uh, four or five months ago. And that's why I'm rebalancing the portfolio and giving ourselves some ability to take advantage of further disconnects. I cannot tell you what's the next like big global event that will create those extremes or those big opportunities, but they will come like they always do. And I want to keep some uh, room to take advantage of that whenever they, they arise. Um, we have a couple questions from uh, advisors. So I want to get to um, one is, can you discuss the weak consumer sentiment in Europe? Yeah, so this is maybe one great example where sentiment and sort of the outlook has been much more negative than the actual numbers. Uh, up until now, the consumer generally like across the globe, and that includes Europe, despite like being a little closer to, uh, to, to war than we are here and where sentiment has been very weak, the consumer kept spending on a pretty good pace. The question is much more so what happens from here, but up until now it's been very resilient, uh, surprisingly so, I think, in the eyes of many. Uh, so what does it mean from here? Um, I think there is going to be some reality of the consumer's strong balance sheet, the ability to spend that's been sort of, sort of eaten into a little bit. So the consumer, being either in the US or in Europe, has sort of utilized a little bit of the excess savings that were generated during the pandemic. So that is going to be a headwind to the consumer, just less of that excess saving to spend. Uh, and I think that's where the transition to real income growth is going to be important. Uh, if we can't have wages growing above inflation, that's going to be needed in a way to keep the consumer going. And if we look at Europe, the good news is on one side, yes, the wage inflation is not as robust as in the US and it's been a little bit delayed versus the US. I think we will see some of that wage inflation. And on the flip side of the equation is inflation in Europe has been even higher than here in North America because the energy price has been, like impact has been that much greater. Like power prices, natural gas prices have really skyrocketed through last year in Europe. And now they're coming back down because those fears of Europe running out of energy through this winter like have been overblown and 
in a way like help by a very warm winter uh, were probably like exaggerated as well uh, last year. But all of that is going to turn deflationary so the consumer in Europe could go from facing 10, 12% inflation to a much lower number. Um, and I think the delta in inflation is going to be greater and should provide, I think, decent room to keep that consumer going even in the face of weaker confidence. And if we can eventually put that conflict in Ukraine in the rearview mirror, um, doesn't seem that this is happening anytime soon, but it's already losing in terms of grabbing the headlines, already losing in terms of impact on the consumer sentiment. Um, I think that this will also help. So yes, there will be pressure, but I think it's probably not going to be the pressure that the market was fearing going back a year ago. Um, and look, I think overall, I think we are clearly going a period of like pretty sharp slowdown in the economy. I think it's probably more 2023 as opposed to 2022, but it will happen. Are we going to get a recession or not? It's still open to debate. I don't think it's going to be of a large magnitude if we get one. Um, but again, the, the focal point I want to remind people is it's not so much pinpointing where are we going to be six months from now, but understanding that the market will gradually shift its perception to focusing on the bad news of the next few months ahead to focusing on an eventual recovery. And at least as a contrarian investor, this is what I want to focus on in my portfolios. So um, we've about four minutes left, but there's one more question. So maybe uh, quickly to, to get to this one is just emerging market opportunities. Do you have any, are you seeing any, you mean to mention China opening up, but are there any sort of more specific opportunities or areas you're looking at emerging markets? Yeah, so the big exposure in portfolio is China, um, focusing on generally like larger cap companies. Um, yeah, maybe some more well-known stocks, like think of some of the large cap tech names over there. Uh, that were hit like very badly from, uh, from the pandemic, from the regulatory crackdown that took place, especially on the tech sector, uh, from very negative like consumer uh, investor perception towards investing in China. Heard lines like China is uninvestable going into last year. And to me, that just created a big, big disconnect between value and fair value. And we've positioned ourselves to take advantage of that. Uh, it came back somewhat, and I think to me that remains probably the bigger opportunity of 2023 in emerging markets. Great. Um, a couple last questions about the fund. I mean, concentrated portfolio, that's right in the name there of those funds, 50, 50 stocks, I think. Um, you have a whole universe of stocks to look at. The global, it's much bigger than, you know, just Canada or North America. Why 50? Why, why take that concentrated approach? I think there's definitely some merits to being more concentrated. Uh, for me, it means the ability as, as an investor, as a human being, to stay on top of everything that's happening to the 50 companies in the portfolio. It's not, there's no stocks in there that's serving like a portfolio construction like uh, need. Those stocks are there because we have a differentiated thesis, because we believe they are mispriced. They're not there to control like factors or exposures. The portfolio, more than being concentrated, is extremely flexible. So uh, I think what I can do in that fund, being concentrated and flexible, is to move allocations from one sector to another pretty quickly and in a very meaningful way. It means that from a sector perspective, it means that from a style perspective, it means that from a country perspective. And I think this is maybe where it can serve a need from clients where 
going in a part of the market that is out of favor, this is, in my opinion, where opportunities get created, but it also means going in very unloved, unpopular areas that's maybe not easy for an investor to say, well, now is the time to buy Europe, if we go back like six months ago when everything sounded bad about the old continent. Um, I think I see the need of the portfolio and what I'm trying to accomplish is move clients' assets into those out of favor parts of the market. While it would be a difficult discussion for advisors to convince their clients to move capital in those areas. So I'll do it for you in the background. It won't be as visible, but we'll get those exposures ideally ahead of time. And look, we won't get the perfect timing. Sometimes we're there too early, but we'll try to be positioned there ahead of time to take advantage of eventual normalization of the world, normalization of a sector, normalization of the outlook for a single company, and really take advantage of that is what I'm trying to do on an everyday basis. Great. Uh, just last question um, uh, about uh, the global nature of the funds. Now, in the global uh, has North America in it. The the international has it without uh, without North America. I mean, you know, advisors could buy a Canadian fund, a U.S. fund, a European fund, an emerging market fund, and call it a day. Um, why why is this approach, you know, the glo the global approach or the international approach, where you're covering all sorts of areas? Why should advisors consider that? I'll go back to what I just mentioned around flexibility. Um, I think it is not always easy for investors, advisors to get those right exposures on a geographic basis ahead of time. I think there's always a little bit of chasing that's involved. And I'm trying to do all of that within the confine of those funds, which in a way removes the need of an investor and advisor saying, now is the time to buy Europe, or now is the time to buy Japan or China or emerging markets or the US, uh, I can move those allocations in a pretty big way. If you look at the portfolios, it is something along the lines of 30% overweight in Europe, 30% underweight in the US. Uh, so it's, it's a, those are global and international portfolios that are uh, taking meaningful like exposures where we have that conviction. Again, trying to do it ahead of time. Um, and just show like a great amount of flexibility to do that. Like those portfolios are very different than, uh, than indices on these uh, geographies. And if we are, as I suspect, like in a year where it might be a transition year where we might get some periods of like optimism followed by disappointment, I, I don't think it's gonna be a straight line market. It gives that flexibility to sort of move in and out of these geographies to some extent um, on a much more like active basis uh, than maybe what you would get from trying to on your own pick a, an emerging market or European or whatever specific country uh, product to add to a client's portfolio. Patrice, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, my pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. 
And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.